Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. We're nearing the end of our series on the first half of Acts this morning, and we have one more next, next Sunday. This morning we're looking at the conversion story of, of Cornelius. We didn't read it because I'm going to be reading it throughout the sermon a little bit. But Cornelius is a Roman centurion, and here is the sermon in, in a sentence. So if you're a note taker, this is the one. The sermon in a sentence. This story, the story of Cornelius' conversion, shows us the three isms the church rejects. And it shows us one ism the church requires. Three isms the church rejects and and one ism the church requires. What is an ism? Well, two-part definition. An ism is first a distinctive doctrine, cause, or theory. Or second, it is an oppressive and discriminatory attitude or belief. So distinctive doctrine or discriminatory belief. So taking the second part of the definition first, let's look at three oppressive and discriminatory isms that the church rejects. Racism, nationalism, and what I'm calling religionism. So first, racism. Acts 10. We're in Acts 10. I'd encourage you to follow along. We're going to be just flowing right through it. Acts 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. All right. Cornelius probably an acquired name, a Roman name. He was probably Syrian. We know that most of the soldiers in Caesarea at this time were Syrian. Whatever he was, we know he wasn't Jewish. That is to say, he was a Gentile. So Peter, imagine Peter now. Peter had been raised, like all good Jewish boys had been, discriminating against Gentiles. Peter was heir to a a strong tradition of prejudice, exemplified in men like Jonah. You know the story of Jonah. Jonah resisted bearing witness to the Gentiles. In fact, he was, he was angry with God when the Ninevites ended up repenting and escaped God's judgment. He was angry because that's how much he discriminated against Gentiles. Peter, during Peter's time, you know, Jewish midwives were forbidden to aid Gentile women in childbirth lest they help propagate Gentile scum. The, the tradition-minded Hebrew called Gentiles goyim, that is the nation's, Goyim, and they spit the word out of their mouth with contempt. Goyim, those dirty goyim. Peter had imbibed this deep racial, racial prejudice his entire life. Now, of course, nationalism, this, this racism had a nationalistic flavor. The tragic irony is that from the beginning, God had chosen Israel. He had blessed them. Why? To be a... Right, they're blessed for a purpose. And despite the psalmist and the prophets foretelling a day when the Gentiles would flow to the house of the Lord and enjoy the Lord's presence along with Israel, Israel had twisted this doctrine, this doctrine of of election into a doctrine of favoritism. In other words, not blessed to be a blessing, but blessed to be better than you. They despised Gentiles as dogs. No Jew would ever be caught dead in the home or around the table of a dirty goyim. You know, the Old Testament law itself hadn't made it impossible, but traditions that had been built up around the law, had made it almost impossible for any kind of contact with Gentiles to even happen. It's hard for me to overstate how deeply entrenched this racism, this nationalism is, and how antithetical it is to the heart of God. These these same isms were at work in Nazi Germany, of course. 
They were at work in the, in the chattel slavery of the antebellum South. They're at work today in, in militant terrorism. They're still at work today in our politics, aren't they? When, when generally aligning with Republican policies, that's well and good, when that becomes an all-encompassing Republicanism, Democrats become subhuman, demonized. Or, conversely, when generally aligning with Democratic policies becomes all-encompassing, when it becomes an ism, Republicans become subhuman, demonized. When, when Trumpism or Bidenism becomes a totalizing ism by which we judge all things and all people, I'm literally succumbing to this, I'm succumbing to this awful lie that is, it is ripping our, our society apart, that I am blessed to be better than you, that I am good and you are a dog because of my nation, because of my race, because of my party, because of my economic status or, or my gender or my neighborhood or my education, I'm better than you. My people are better than your people. We are better than they. They are the problem. And the solution then, complain about them, slander them, judge them, avoid them, silence them, demonize them, kill them if you must. So Cornelius, the first Gentile convert in the New Testament, reminds us that our God made all people in his image and he is working to lovingly gather from every tribe every language, every color, every nation. This story isn't just about Cornelius' conversion then. It's also about Peter's. Peter's conversion out of the racism and the nationalism that has kept Jews and Gentiles trapped in these endless cycles of hostility. And out of that cycle and into a community that is meant to end all isms, the church. In the church of Jesus, says Henry Nouwen, there are no countries to be conquered. There are no ideologies to be imposed. There are no people to be dominated. There are only children, women, and men to be loved. The church is called to be a place where these isms come and die. Okay, racism, nationalism, but notice there's also a third and more subtle ism at work here. We might call it religionism. Luke goes on in, in verse 2, chapter 10, verse 2. He says, Cornelius and all his fam family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. Okay, interesting. This probably means that Cornelius belonged to a group of people, a class of Gentiles known as God-fearers. They were Gentiles who believed in Yahweh, and they practiced aspects of Jewish devotion, such as giving and, and praying, but who hadn't yet become proselytes through, through circumcision. So they were still outside of the covenant. Now, God-fearers, this, this softened the hostilities of the isms I've just, I've just talked about, but in the end, they were outsiders. They were not circumcised. They were outside of the covenant. So Cornelius' excellence in religious devotion makes what happens next very strange. An angel visits Cornelius and says, your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Okay, then look what the angel says. Not, well done, continue in prayer and generosity, for you have pleased God. No, he says in verse 5, now send for a man named Peter and hear what he has to say. So Cornelius complies. Why does God command this? Evidently, Cornelius' very admirable religious devotion was at once noteworthy and insufficient. Why? This wasn't a religious man who needed more religion. This was a religious man who needed a conversion. A lot of people might think that's the same thing. Conversion is taking on more of, more of religion or something, right? Wrong. Remember the first part of the ism definition an ism is a distinctive doctrine 
cause, or theory. Cornelius didn't need more doctrine, cause, or theory. He needed a baptism. He didn't need more religion. He needed a new birth. Like Nicodemus, the the Pharisee needed a new birth. You know, Jesus takes issue with religious people a lot, doesn't he? You might think of the Pharisees here. He calls them whitewashed tombs. Why? He knows that there are actually two ways to reject God. The first and most obvious is to overtly reject him, as atheists do. You know, in the parable of the two sons, this is the younger brother who squanders the father's wealth and wild living. He rejects his father and he lives however he wants. And that's most of the people outside of the church, right? Our atheist friends and neighbors, maybe. But there's a second way to reject God. And it's more subtle and possibly more dangerous. It's not rejecting God, but it's religionism. This is the older brother who thinks that his performance put, puts his father in his debt. That it's, it's a religionism that, that, that strives to give enough, to pray enough, to perform enough, because if I do that, then I earn God's favor by rights. I can earn it rather than receive it as a gift. And in some ways, I'm playing God. I'm trying to be perfect enough to not even need him, really. You see, that's the older brother. The first doesn't follow God because they don't believe in him, and the second don't really follow him because they believe too much in themselves. So in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, there there are two former work acquaintances, um, and they meet in the afterlife. One is now a ghost who resides in hell, and the other is a murderer who is now a solid person who lives in heaven. So two acquaintances, one a ghost in hell, one a solid person in heaven, and the one in heaven is the murderer. The ghost cries foul. He says, what I'd like to understand, said the ghost, is what you're here in heaven for, please this punch. You, a bloody murderer, while I'm down here. Should be the other way around. I've done right all my life. I don't say I had no faults, but I'd done my best all my life, see? I'd done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it. If I took my wages, I'd done my job, see? That's the sort I was, and I don't care who knows it. I've got to have my rights, same as you, see? The solid person responds, oh no, I haven't got my rights, or I should not be here, and you will not get yours either. You'll get something far better. And the ghost says, what do you keep arguing for? I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. Then do at once, says the solid man. Ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking, and nothing can be bought. The ghost says, I don't want charity. I'm a decent man, and if I had my rights, I'd have been here long ago, and you can tell him I said so. And the solid man said, you won't make it like that. And it isn't exactly true, you know. What isn't true, asked the ghost. You weren't a decent man, and you didn't do your best. None of us were, and none of us did. You mind your own business, young man, said the ghost. None of your lips, see? because I'm not taking any impudence from you about my private affairs. There are no private affairs, said the other. I'd rather be damned than go along with you. I came here to get my rights, see? Not to go sniveling along on charity tied to your apron strings. I'll go home. That's what I'll do. Damn and blast the whole pack of you. That's the religious spirit. Religionism says, I prayed, I gave, so give me my rights. Give me what I earned. Now, who knows? We don't know this for sure, but perhaps Cornelius would have gone down this religious road without God's intervention. He was a religious man. He prayed, he gave, but apparently it wasn't enough. 
because God intervenes and he sends him to Peter. And what does Peter do? He offers him the bleeding charity. Not religionism, but baptism. And that's the ism the church requires. Baptism. In verses 9 through 22, the, the Holy Spirit sovereignly and miraculously orchestrates this meeting between this Jewish Christ follower and leader of the early church, Peter, and this religious Goyim, Cornelius. We read of how the Spirit prepares Peter's heart for this encounter with this strange vision, picking it up in verse 11. Peter's up on the roof, and he's hot, like many of us, and he's in the sun, and he, he's in the tanner's house. There's probably animals around, and he has this strange dream. A large sheet's being let down to the earth by its four corners. It contains all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. That detail's important because some, many reptiles were unclean, like pigs for the Jews, so there was clean and unclean animals. And the voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replies. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And then in verse 19, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So the three men were Gentiles. Cornelius' delegation had arrived to bring Peter to Cornelius' house to share the good news. Interestingly, note this little detail. Peter is now in the same town, Joppa, as Jonah was when Jonah decided to board a ship and run from God's command to preach from the Gentiles. Would Peter do the same? No. God commands him in verse 20, Get up, go downstairs, do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So Peter, unlike Jonah, obeys the call to preach to the Gentiles. Several scholars point out a really interesting nugget hidden in the Greek text here. When we read of the Spirit saying to Peter, Do not hesitate to go, the Greek construction more literally says, Make no distinction. Making no distinction, go with them. It sounds funny in English, doesn't it? But it's making no distinction, go with them. The Spirit is offering an interpretation here of the vision that Peter's just had. And no longer distinguishing between clean and unclean foods, which were gathered on the sheet, the Spirit is exhorting Peter to no longer distinguish between clean and unclean people. And so the group sets out together for this 31-mile trip north to Caesarea where Cornelius awaits, now picking up the story in verse 27. Peter went outside, inside to Cornelius' house, that is, and he found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a, or visit a goyim, a, a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for you, I came without raising any objection. Now that's Peter's own understanding of his vision. And then Cornelius recounts the story of an angel bidding him to send for Peter. Now listen to Cornelius' words. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now, here we are gathered in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. So in eager stillness, I think, probably descended upon the room, Peter took a deep breath and begins his sermon. Now, what are the precious words that God has carefully arranged for Cornelius and his household to hear? to take him beyond his religious religionism and into the good news. Here are the precious words of the gospel that Peter speaks. I'm just going to read this sermon. We haven't yet in our series read a sermon of Peter's, so we're just going to read it, beginning in verse 34. Peter says, I now realize how true it is that God doesn't have favorites, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. 
You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. That's point one of Peter's sermon. Now, I have an affinity for this sermon because it happens to be three points, and you all know I love a three-point sermon. So this is point one, the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, on to point two. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. So there we have point two. He was killed, some translations say, on a tree. The word literally there is tree. He was killed and hung on a tree. But point three, God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. Resurrection. He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And here's what happens. As Peter is speaking, the Holy Spirit comes on all who hears this message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit was being poured out even on the Goyim, even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And Peter concludes, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have, so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. What we've just read is, well, we saw in Acts 2 the baptism of the Jews. We've just read, excuse me, the Pentecost for the Jews. We've just read of Pentecost for the Gentiles. As Peter preaches, the Spirit falls, and Cornelius' little house church begins speaking in tongues. By the way, not because that's always what happens when the Spirit comes, as some believe, but because God is showing Peter the exact sign of the Spirit that he himself had experienced at Pentecost. He's making the data irrefutable. They've received the Spirit just as you have. The Gentiles have been given the Spirit of God. What's left to do? Baptize them. Peter's logic goes like this. They've already received the reality that baptism signals, so let's mark the moment with the sacrament itself. All right, what does this mean? It means the Gentiles don't need Judaism. They need baptism. They need the ism to end all isms. His three-point sermon shows us how baptism ends the discriminatory isms that tear us apart. Point one, Jesus' life empowered ministry, spirit-empowered ministry, offering healing and wholeness. Second, Jesus' death on a tree, sending us back to Deuteronomy 21, cursed by God is anyone who is hanged on a tree. So there, Cornelius is the bleeding charity, where God exchanged what was ours by right, our sin, for what was his by right, life. Our life for his bleeding charity. And then he finished with a flourish in point three, the resurrection. We ate and drank with him, he says. Cornelius, don't become a Christian because it's fulfilling, though it is, or because it's strengthening, though of course it is, or for any other reason than this. It's true. Jesus lived. He died. He lived again. We sat around a fire, and Jesus said, Peter, pass the bread, and I did. And then he ate it in front of me. If this is the story that baptism brings us into, and it is, then you see why baptism ends racism and nationalism and religionism and every other discriminatory-ism you can think of. It says to nationalism, your nation may require you to justly or unjustly die for it, 
but Jesus freely died for you. It says to racism, we have different languages, customs, colors, but we have the same spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father, we are children of God. It says to religionism, by rights, you are not better than anyone else. If you want your rights, be careful what you wish for. You need to ask for the bleeding charity. But then comes the objection, and I'll close with this thought. Isn't baptism into Jesus' life and death exclusive? And isn't that exclusive ism just another ism like all the rest, making one group better than the other? Well, Tim Keller says that every faith, every faith is narrow. You know, even the faith that says all faiths are equal excludes those who disagree, doesn't it? Every claim to any kind of belief necessarily excludes those who don't agree with you. So if someone says, I believe all religions are equal, and someone else doesn't agree with them, they're excluding that belief. So to have a belief at all is exclusive to some degree. The Christian faith, though, has Jesus, yes, exclusive faith in Jesus, but it has this Jesus dying for people who don't love him or care for him or agree with him. So placing him at the center of your life will allow you to do the same for those who don't love or care for you or agree with you. This makes Christianity the most inclusive of all the exclusive faiths. You see, at the heart of our faith is a man who died for those who disagree with him, who died for his enemies. And so, yes, we have exclusive trust in Christ, but what kind of trust and what kind of faith does it produce? A radically charitable faith to those who don't align with our own views. So baptism is like, unlike any other ism, You know, it humbles us because it means we admit that by rights, our sins mean we deserve to go under the water and stay there. And so you can never look down your nose at anybody else, any other person, any other people, any other group. But instead of drowning you, Christ drowns. He takes the curse on the tree. He offers the bleeding charity that atones for your every sin. Romans 6, do you not know that all of you who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? There no longer remains a punishment. It's done. You've been baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so we now join with those who, having heard this this Gentile Pentecost from Peter, who conclude... God has granted the Gentiles repentance unto life. And as we read this story, and as we reflect on it maybe in the days ahead, remember that we are heirs to this story. Here we are, Gentiles, most of us, in whom these very words and this very story lives on. So, Father, I pray for us to become a radically charitable and generous people to those on the outside, to those people groups who are marginalized, to to people who don't look like us or speak like us or think like us, that you would, in offering us the bleeding charity, help us to offer your charity to others. Would you convict us of some of the isms that are alive and well in our own hearts and help us to be people who pursue reconciliation as you've given us that ministry. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.